is heaven a real place? Somebody recently gave me the movie Heaven is for Real, and I watched it this week. And while I didn't necessarily agree with all of the answers it gave about certain questions, I loved the questions that it was raising. Questions like, is heaven for real? What's it like? If heaven is a real place, which it is, shouldn't we be talking more about it? Shouldn't we be looking forward to it? Shouldn't it be part of our conversation? I mean, after all, here at Calvary Church, there have been a number of people that I know of recently who are dear to this church and dear to us who have gone home to heaven to be with the Lord. There are many of us here uh, who have babies that we'd like to meet or loved ones that we can't wait to see again who, according to the scriptures, are waiting for us in heaven. And if heaven is a real place, which it is, shouldn't we spend some time thinking about what it's going to be like in heaven so that we can anticipate and look forward to this hope that God has for us? Well, that's what we'd like to talk about this morning, so please take a Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. It's page 172 in the Bibles that the church provides. Joshua chapter 5. Let me catch us up to where we are in the story of Joshua. We've been following the children of Israel as God has brought them uh, into the promised land. These are the descendants of Abraham and God has given them a specific piece of land in the Middle East and he's promised it to them. He's asked them to trust him to cross the Jordan River to go into this land and we've watched the children of Israel do that. As they got across the Jordan River, the very first thing that they did was they thanked God for his miraculous provision for getting them into the land. The second thing they did, which we looked at last week, was that they went through the covenant ceremony of circumcision. It was a sign reminding them that they belonged to God and them committing themselves to be God's people. This morning we see sort of the third thing that they do when they get into the land. Now remember, they don't have the land yet. They've simply just set foot on the shores on the west side of the Jordan River into the land of Canaan that God's been promising to them. And we pick up the story, Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. On the evening of the 14th day of the month... While camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. So up until this point, the children of Israel have been wandering around in the wilderness. God's been feeding them miraculously by sending them bread from heaven. They cross the Jordan River. They celebrate God's provisions. And then after they go through the rite of circumcision, they then have a Passover celebration. And after the Passover celebration, they begin to eat the food of the land. No more need for manna from heaven. 
They're now at least in part into the land that God is going to give them. Now they can begin to live off of God's provision in the land. Now when I read this, I have to tell you, it's not at all what I expect. I'm expecting when they get into the land, now remember, 440 years they've been waiting for this land. They've heard about the land over and over again, a land flowing with milk and honey, a beautiful land, a wonderful land, pomegranates, grapes, figs, a lush, green, amazing land. They've been hearing about this land for 440 years. What I'm expecting is a feast. I'm expecting a gigantic celebration. But look what they're eating. See what it says? Unleavened bread and roasted grain. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, love to celebrate with that. Wait a minute. Where's the milk and honey? Where are the grapes? Where are the pomegranates? Where's the fruit? Where's the table overflowing? I mean, after all, they've been waiting so long, and I'm saying to myself, First meal in the promised land, I'm expecting a gigantic, huge feast. But that's not what they have. Roasted grain, unleavened bread. What's going on? Well, they don't have the land yet. They haven't yet planted vineyards. They haven't yet settled down. They haven't yet raised cattle. They haven't yet cultivated the land. This can't yet be a land filled with milk and honey because they've just begun to inhabit it. So what is it that they're doing here when they celebrate the Passover? Well, remember the Passover was how they got out of Egypt, but it's a celebration not just of their freedom from slavery in Egypt. It's a celebration that God was saving them from something to something, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So what the children of Israel are doing here is they're celebrating in anticipation. They're celebrating that this land will someday be a land flowing with milk and honey. Someday we will have all of it. Look, we've already got roasted grain. It's not a huge feast, but it's a start. And what they're doing is they are in anticipation and in hope of the promised land. Gathering together to say, Lord... It's as good as here. It's begun to arrive in our lives. Now that's what the children of Israel are doing. The question for us is, how do we do Joshua chapter 5? How do we put this passage into practice? Because remember, in the book of Joshua, God has said, do everything written in the scriptures. Then you'll be successful. Then you'll be prosperous. How do we do what they're doing? Well, first we need to realize that we too have a land promised to us by God. The scriptures tell us it's not a chunk of land in the Middle East, it's heaven. Heaven is our promised land, a land far better than one flowing with milk and honey. And if the children of Israel stop to celebrate in anticipation the promised land that God is giving to them, in order for us to obey this passage, we should stop and celebrate in anticipation of the promised land of heaven that God is going to give to us. 
So that's what we'd like to do this morning. We'd like to spend some time thinking about heaven. Because it's hard to celebrate in anticipation of something you don't ever talk about. So take your Bible and turn, please, to Revelation chapter 21. Book of Revelation chapter 21. It's all the way in the back of the Bible. It's page 1004. Revelation 21. And what I'd like to give you today is five things that we have to look forward to in heaven. Five things that God has revealed to us in his word, or we can at least assume from the things he has revealed in his word about what heaven will be like, this promised land that God is giving to all who have faith in Jesus, all who have accepted Jesus by faith. What is heaven like? This heaven that we are waiting for. Revelation chapter 21, verse number 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The first thing that the Bible tells us about heaven that we're looking forward to Heaven is where we will experience God face to face. It's where we'll experience God face to face. No prophecies, no mystery, no wondering, no confusion. You ever wonder sometimes, Lord, what are you up to like this morning? Lord, what's going on here? In heaven, there are no mysteries. There are no wonder because you can talk to God face to face. To face. You ever had that experience maybe in a worship service or during a time of prayer or maybe reading the Bible or when you're out in nature or when you're playing sports or you're with friends on a beautiful lake and the sun is setting or whatever it may be when just for a moment your spirits sort of lift and you feel God present in that moment. Maybe tears come to your eyes or the hair stands up on the back of your neck or you get chills or whatever it may be, but you feel in that moment that God is there. Have you had that experience? That's what heaven is like all the time. That instead of just glimpses of God in creation or moments of God in worship or a, a, a time in prayer when you, you kind of step out of the routine of prayer and you're sort of elevated into God's presence, Instead of those happening here and there and little fits and starts, it's, that's the constant experience. Amen. That's right. That's what we're looking forward to. Have you ever had the experience where you felt God's pleasure? That in the job, that you, when you're at work and you've done a good job or when you completed a project, I'm trying to fix our dryer at home. Our dryer broke. And when I put that whole thing back together, it didn't work actually, by the way. But when I put the whole thing back together, I felt a sense of accomplishment. I felt God's pleasure. Felt God's pleasure when you're out running. That's what heaven is like, but all of the time. God's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You and I don't have to wonder, well, was that really God? Did I, did I, did I mistake his voice for my own? Am I just making this stuff up? The great thing about heaven is that faith will be sight. All the things we we're pretty sure are true about God, all of the things where we're pretty sure that God has done this, we'll know for a fact. And we'll know God. And you know what in heaven? 
we get to continue to learn more about God. You ever learn something new about God and say, wow, that is so cool. Or see God display his faithfulness in some new way and just sit back and go, man, isn't God amazing? I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to continue to know more about God because God is infinite. You can never exhaust our knowledge of God. In the Gospel of John, we're told that if all the things Jesus said and did just while he was on the earth were written down, all the books couldn't contain them. Imagine how much there is if we think about who God is for all of eternity and all the things that God has done. I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to continue to get to know God better and better and better. Like a spouse or a friend or a child where you've had a relationship with them for years and years and years and you get to know them in deeper, more wonderful ways. That's like it'll be with God. That we'll hear story after story after story of God's faithfulness. We'll see God continue to be faithful. God's not going to stop being faithful once we get to heaven. We'll continue to know more about him. And in ever-increasing, an ever-increasing way, we'll continue to fall in love with him. That's what we have to look forward to heaven is, is that heaven is a place where we experience God face to face. Secondly, heaven is a place of beauty. Revelation 21 Verse number four. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, meaning our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Look in verse 27, same chapter. Nothing impure will ever enter heaven, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In heaven, there's no sin. There's no disease. There's no mental illness. There's no spiritual warfare. There's no pain. There's no strife. There's no anxiety. There's no worry. There's no death. There's no broken relationships. There's no tiredness. There's no anxiety. There's no fear. All the things that make up the ugliness of life, jealousy, envy, lust, unfulfilled cravings, all those things gone. In their place, joy, beauty, love, hope, laughter, fulfillment, satisfaction. God says all of the beauty of life, think for a minute, What's the most beautiful place you've ever been on this earth? You got it? Is it the Caribbean? Is it the Grand Canyon? Is it the Rocky Mountains? Is it Sleeping Bear National Dunes? Think about that place. That place will exist in heaven or something that looks like it, but perhaps better. After all, God created the Grand Canyon. God created the Rocky Mountains. God created all this earth. And what we're told is, is yes, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But the idea is, the Grand Canyon is what God thinks is beautiful. Heaven is filled with places of God's beauty. A new earth that is just as filled with variety and beauty as this earth, but more. Think about the most beautiful city you've ever been to. Paris, Rome, 
New York. You see, we're told that in heaven there'll at least be one city. I have no reason to think that there won't be more. Imagine those cities with all the sinful elements of humanity removed from them and all that's remaining in those cities is the beauty of human goodness which is an expression of us being created in the image of God. That's what heaven, filled with beauty. Think about the most beautiful food you've ever eaten. In heaven we're told there'll be a magnificent feast. There are trees that are growing fruit that there is a river filled with the water of life that you're free to drink from any time. The idea is this heaven is a place of beauty. Number three, heaven is a place of renewal. Verse number two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed, for her husband. Now the interesting thing to me about this verse is, do you know who the inventor of the city is? It's Cain. As in Cain and Abel fame, the first murderer in history. If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, Cain is the person who invents the city and he invents it for bad purposes. God has cursed Cain and said, you're going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain says, no, thank you. I'm going to create my own community. And he builds a city so that he can interact with others. But here's the amazing thing. What's coming down from heaven? A city. God has taken Cain's concept and redeemed it. God has taken Cain's invention and made it better. And that what we have coming down from heaven is a city, the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And this is indicative of what God seems like he's going to do. He's going to take the best that humans have to offer, erase the human sinfulness or the bad motivation, and present it again renewed and beautiful. You know that in the book of Revelation, it talks about us singing or the people in heaven singing the song of Moses. Who do you think wrote the song of Moses? Moses, not a trick question. Moses wrote the song of Moses. It also says that we'll be singing new songs. Who do you think is going to write the songs we're going to sing? Me, I'm going to write them. Finally, I'm going to get to heaven and have some ounce of musical ability. I'm going to write some songs and you're going to love them. <laughs> the point is, is that we're the ones writing the songs. Look in verse 24 of chapter 21. The nations will walk by its light, meaning God's light, and the kings of their earth will bring their splendor into heaven, into the new Jerusalem. Verse 26. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. What is that? Well, what I think that is, is that is human art, architecture, music, writing, all the things where God has given us the ability to create and to build, being brought to God and used in his service. The idea is heaven is not us sitting around on a bunch of clouds bored to death. The idea is heaven, God created work. God loves when we create things, when we build things, when we engage with this world. I think heaven is filled with human beings, you and I, writing 
and creating and making music and doing all of the things that we might love here and now, but freed from the problems of sin. Writing books, poetry, creating companies, inventing things, technology, all of this stuff, but being brought in to God for his honor and for his glory. It says in Revelation that we will serve God. Again, we're not just sitting around doing nothing. God has an entire universe that he wants to run. We will serve God. The idea is is that we'll be in charge of creation and that creation will actually submit to us this time. It means we'll probably be farming, but without weeds. We'll probably be cooking, but without any cleanup afterwards. We may very well have pets without any vets to have to take care of their sickness. We may very well be playing sports, but without injuries. We may very well have jobs, but without horrible bosses. The idea is, please don't think about heaven as being so otherworldly that we don't know anything about it. The good, beautiful things of this life, they come from God. And those things that have come to us through human invention, humans were able to invent those because we're created in the image of God. And in heaven, God takes all this human stuff and much, much more and simply renews it and redeems it and uses it for good instead of for evil. Fourth thing about heaven. Heaven is a place where relationships continue and expand. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked a trick question by the Sadducees, religious leaders of the time, trying to get him to say that there is no resurrection from the dead. Jesus uses the opportunity to teach us something about relationships in the resurrection. This is what he says. Jesus replied, you, meaning the Sadducees who asked him this question, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, meaning in heaven, People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have, I, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now at first glance, when you read that passage, you may come away thinking that the relationships in heaven are worse than the ones here on earth. Maybe you're in a very happy marriage and you're thinking to yourself, well, in heaven, if we're not going to be married, I'm going to lose this incredibly wonderful relationship that I have with this person. That's not the point at all. Jesus' point is basically this. The very best human relationship that you can imagine having, maybe it's a marriage relationship, maybe it's a relationship with a friend, maybe it's a relationship with a child, whatever it may be, take a marriage relationship, Jesus is saying, as the example. The very best human relationship that you can have. On earth, you can only have that with one person. In heaven, we will be free to have those kinds of deep, meaningful relationships with all sorts of people. And Jesus' point is not that, hey, when you get to heaven, you'll see somebody who looks familiar and go, was I married to you at one point? The point is, is the kind of relationship that you can have with your spouse in the very best sense of what God wants Those are the kinds of relationships we'll be able to have with each other and with all people who are in heaven. God says, look, 
I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are not three random individuals. Abraham is Isaac's dad. Abraham is Jacob's grandson. You get the idea that in heaven, Isaac is still connected to Abraham, and Jacob is still connected to Isaac and to Abraham both. But the amazing thing about heaven is we'll be connected to them as well. Our relationships will grow and expand, and it won't simply be the relationships we've had here on earth. It's interesting to me that at the transfiguration, when Jesus is giving a sneak preview of what heaven's going to look like, Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain of transfiguration with him, talking to Jesus and each other. But you know what they don't do? Moses doesn't walk over to Elijah and say, hey, I'm Moses, it's nice to meet you. They wouldn't have known each other on earth. They didn't live anywhere near the same time on earth. How do they know each other at the transfiguration? Because they've met each other in heaven. The relationships have continued to expand and to grow. In heaven, the very best relationship you've had with a human here is simply a taste of what our relationships will be like with humans in heaven. That's Jesus' point. Fifth and finally, heaven is a place of reward and restoration. It's a place of reward and restoration. Look over at chapter 22 in the book of Revelation, verse 12. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what? they have done. He's talking here about those who have put their faith in him, who have served him and worked for him. Heaven is when Jesus gets to reward us for our service. Heaven is when he gets to bring to us great rewards. That's why he says in Matthew chapter 6, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and where thieves don't break in and steal. The idea is, is when you get to heaven, you're going to have a storehouse of rewards waiting for you. Rewards that won't simply be spent or used over a few years here on earth, but that will be available for eternity. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I don't consider our present suffering even worth comparing to what's coming for us in heaven. That what God has for us is all the suffering we've been through in this life, all the times we've been ostracized for Jesus, all the times in which we've suffered through sickness or difficulty, all of the pain and all of the sin that has been done to us and that we've done, all that suffering. Paul says God's going to reward us for enduring that with glory in heaven. This is why Jesus says, blessed are you. When people revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil falsely against you, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That Jesus says, look, I can't wait for you to get here. I can't wait. You don't even know what I've got ready for you. I have not ignored the good deeds you've done. The reward is coming. Even more than that. Heaven is a place of restoration. It's where God has the chance to make up to us all the things we suffered in this life. Do you hear what I'm saying? Not just reward us for enduring them, but make it up to us. 
God says, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. It's a beautiful passage. God's saying in that passage, look, you went through a famine. I'm going to make it up to you. It's not just you're going to survive the famine. I'm going to take anything you would have gotten during that famine and give it to you now and more. That's what heaven is. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Heaven is filled with comfort for those who mourned on earth. It's a place where if you've lost a baby, God will make up that lost time. That you be with that child and he will make up those lost years. It's where if you've lost a spouse too early, heaven is when God will make it up to you. It's where if you've been confined in a wheelchair in this life or where you've suffered a hearing loss or where you've had other physical problems, God's saying, look, not just, hey, when you get to heaven, that stuff will be gone. What he's saying is, I will make it up to you. That if you've been through abuse or you've been born into poverty or had difficult situation or whatever it may be, heaven is where God restores all things, where he takes whatever we've been through, the hurt and the pain, and not just says, well done for enduring it. He actually makes it up to us. And he says, I'll restore the years the locusts have eaten. I'm going to give you so much more than you ever missed. I'm going to make it all up to you. That's why heaven's such good news. <laughs> That's why we're not doing ourselves any favor by forgetting about heaven. It's, this, it's our promised land. It's what we look forward to. It's so far better than a land filled with milk and honey, a land full of green luck. It is everything you could possibly imagine good that you've ever experienced in this life minus anything bad you've ever experienced, plus God's presence and so much more. One of the trouble we get into is we think about heaven as this really strange, far-off place that we don't know anything about. You and I know a lot about heaven. We've just experienced it in little, tiny bites. And God's saying, if you've ever experienced the joy of worshiping me or hearing me answer prayer or the beauty of creation or the wonder of, uh, of finishing a project that you've been working on, the greatness of a relationship. If you've ever experienced any of those things, those were just tastes of what I've got coming for you in heaven. So what are we supposed to do this morning? We're supposed to celebrate in anticipation. We don't have heaven yet. Life is still filled with heartbreak. Things on a Sunday morning don't go exactly as we were planning them to go. But God is saying it's coming. And so we're going to celebrate communion. Why communion? The Israelites celebrated Passover. Passover was a celebration of God's rescue from sin and death and the fact that God had promised to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Importantly, when Jesus sat down to celebrate not only the last Passover meal while he was here on earth, but his last supper as a whole, he said these words when he took the cup. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus on the verge of hell has his mind set on heaven. 
and he says that when we gather together for his disciples at the Last Supper, what we're supposed to do is think about the fact that we will soon eat bread and drink a cup with Jesus in heaven at a great feast. We commemorate that night with communion. And during communion, we celebrate the fact that even though it's a little tiny piece of bread, and they are small, aren't they? And a little bit of juice, it's just a tiny taste that God has for us is far beyond anything we could ever hope for or imagine. And so we gather at communion to do what Jesus told us to do, is to look through the hell of this world to the heaven that's coming for us.